welcome to Antitrust Code by Concurrences. Concurrences is the leading antitrust database, with over 30,000 articles on competition law. Concurrences is also the largest network of antitrust experts, with lawyers, economists, enforcers, and academics in 85 countries. By listening to this podcast, you will learn the fundamentals of competition law and hear about the latest antitrust news, thanks to our guests, the best experts in the antitrust world. Hi, well, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm uh, Oliver Latham uh, from Charles Ripper Associates European Competition Practice, and I'm joined here uh, by Pierre Regibault from DGCom. Hi. Uh, thanks for joining us. So this was billed as, a, as an exit interview, really looking towards the handover to the next uh, chief economist. But uh, with latest developments this week, perhaps that was uh, a, bit, a, a bit premature. And uh, we, we don't, in fact, know who our, who our next chief economist was going to be. Um, we'll touch on, on the gossip there uh, later on, but uh, I wanted to really, you know, start with some substance and, you know, to kick off, you've been chief economist through a period of, of, of big developments in, in competition policy. We've got the, the rise of sort of neo-Brandesian thinking in the US. We've got this more muscular approach to merger enforcement worldwide, especially uh, in digital cases. And, and in Europe especially, we have the antitrust toolkit in digital markets being supplemented with uh, ex-ante regulation. And so it'd be just good to get your insight as to how you've navigated those trends. Do you see a change in the role of economics during your time in the post? And uh, yeah, what's your, what's your takeaway from your time as chief economist? Okay, for, first let's go to, to the various trends. And the first one is a neo-Brandesian trend mostly in the US with some ECOs maybe uh, in the UK. Something which is important to understand is that it's actually very natural to have such a revival in the US where the Sherman Act itself was a response not especially to the deadweight losses resulting from monopoly power, but from the kind of greater role and impact of monopoly power on politics and society. So there's nothing strange in going back there. So it would, on the other hand, be something very strange in us getting there, because you can read the treaties whichever way you want. Uh, this kind of broader interpretation of what we're supposed to do would be very, very hard to find. So from that point of view, I do not find any pressure to do the same thing, because we just can't. Now, <coughs> in terms of the perception that we've already seen in the latest controversy, saying that you know we bunch of have-beens who do not follow the latest trend in the US and so on, I would point out that however exciting uh, the reign of Lydia Kern the FTC might have been, so far they have gotten essentially no results. Uh, I'm sorry to say, but it's very exciting to tilt against windmill, but usually it hurts. Uh, what we've done is try to focus on cases which we really thought was problematic, but we, where we thought also there were some chances of getting result following you know, well-grounded uh, economic uh, analysis. There have been kind of you know, other trends, of course. Uh, the DMA, I've spoken enough about the DMA, so I'm not going to say anything about <laughs> the relationship between the DMA and antitrust uh, uh, and so on. In terms of the role of economics, especially in antitrust, let's forget mergers for now. I don't think it's changed. I think that the way economics has been handled, uh, you know, I say under my direction, but you know, it's, it's the natural evolution of the CT. And the CT is its, is its own direction. Uh, it's an evolution of what we've had uh, before. 
in the sense that if you compare it to the early day, we don't consider ourselves like you know the magicians, the saviors is a great tool, uh, toolbox that can kind of solve your problem with a model or with an estimation. You know, this is the longer what we think of ourselves off. Clearly, we're still available to do more technical analysis, but we think that uh, which is justified by where competition law comes from. We want to be involved from the very beginning of cases in the underlying logic mm -hmm. of the case. You know, we look at the sector, we look at what's happening there. Is there something we don't like? Why? How can we articulate the logic? So what kind of theory of arms are at least plausible? Then we should also be involved in deciding, given that, what kind of information do we need? Because it, it'd be silly just sit back as a CT, let the case team do the information request, then come back later and say, oh, you didn't ask that. That's something that would have been useful to support or inform this theory of harm. And then I think that we have to follow us to, to the end, the development of the theory of arms, the response of the parties, maybe additional evidence, maybe some technical things, and also the remedies. Actually, for the remedies, I would add that one of the things that economics really bring you is that from the very start, where you have a theory of harm, you have to think about the, th the remedies. Because, you know, uh, if, you don't, if you don't have the remedies, yeah, then, the, then remedies? the choice between doing your case or not is not the same as if you think that you have kind of uh, decent yeah, What uh, should be remedies. without remedies should be without regard, I think, you is don't the, know. The, the, the Macbeth quote. But, but so I think it's interesting you're talking about shifting the toolkit and kind of becoming almost a bit more qualitative it sounds like and a bit less quantitative more applying economic principles to and logic yes. and logic rather yeah. than 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 necessarily sort of purely quantitative analysis um, and i guess with the rise of kind of more dynamic theories where you can't compute a diversion ratio because you may be talking about a product that that doesn't even exist yet you can see why you need need that shift but there does seem to be as part of those trends that that we discussed before plenty of voices who really question the role of economics at all, e either the kind of, especially in that kind of quantitative context, but, but perhaps more generally in terms of framing the discussion. So we see, you know, the new, the new horizontal merger guidelines in the US, which seem to be taking a, a more kind of structural approach, a less effects-based approach. So we're just wondering, how do you kind of, how does economics kind of adjust and sort of stay relevant okay. in that context? There are two separate things. There's uh, all this kind of fancy, hard numerical things are a problem. They're hard to explain to the court, and sometimes we lose because of them. So a shade of that in the reaction of some people to the Intel case. Okay, I have some sympathy for that. That's why I've said that we've turned a little bit away from those kind of very hard miracle, quote unquote, uh, analysis. Uh, doesn't mean that we won't use them when appropriate. It also depends what you mean by using them. So it's using them for yourself. You know, I build a model say, to check, a, to check an argument that I have, because with a model, I'd see, am I forgotten effects? Also, the models might give me an idea of getting a feeling for the order of magnitude. Now, in some cases, the formal analysis you come up with is going to be solid enough that we would feel comfortable bringing it to the fore as part of the theory of harm or as support to the theory of harm and then to have it examined and disputed by parties and things like that. But I think that's going to be the exception rather than the rule from this point of view. Now, in terms of the logic, I would 
I would argue that if you don't have an economic logic, then competition law is just a sham. It's absolutely no way, actually, in his, in his talk at Cressy, uh, Professor Wish said itself that without economic competition law is an empty shell. Mm -hmm. So those who think uh, that there's too much economics to thinking, just some sorry to say don't know, don't know what they're talking about. You should sometimes see what, you know, and I'm not criticizing case teams, as, you know, sometimes they do a good job, sometimes, but you should see sometimes what comes up from the first round of cases analysis and see what it becomes after there's been some economic uh, uh, logic applied to it. And you would never argue that economic reasoning is not, uh, uh, is not useful. Okay, well that's, that's, that's comforting, comforting to hear. So, so maybe to, to pick a specific <coughs> example of where we sort of need to kind of think through the economic logic of, 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 of theories of harm. So hot topic in, in merger review at the moment is this idea of ecosystem effects. And we'd be interested in you know, how you see the issues here. You know, some people would say this is just you know, old wine in new bottles, it's just kind of conglomerate effects with a new label. Others would say that there are novel issues when you've got kind of multiple interconnected products, you know, feedback loops, which, which go beyond just kind of bi bi binary interconnections between products and services. So how have you been thinking about those issues at the Commission and, you know, how far should these things be pushed? As you know, I've been thinking about those issues since my graduate days, so I'm getting a little sick of them. But the question of vocabulary before. For me, when I talk about conglomerate effect, I don't I talked about really independent products, not complementary products. I think complementary products are a distant case from uh, from independent product. And clearly with uh, ecosystem you have you have a complementarity. Sometimes the difference between exposed and ex at Exante complementarity, we're not going to get into this, but there is there's some complementarity. So the complementarity is going to matter. And it certainly matters in the sense that, generally speaking, we think that internalizing it, uh, 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 complementarity is a good thing. So in a sense, it's, it's a more vertical version of, uh, of, of, of conglomerates. And we have this equivalent presumption that eliminating double marginalization, which is kind of the same, tends to be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Therefore, building theory of arms that kind of overcomes that efficiency presumption is, is a little bit harder. Now, what are we trying to do? What, what can we do? And I will distinguish between mergers and between antitrust. Okay. In mergers, as I've already suggested, I think that, and forget about you know, killer's acquisition and early acquisitions, it's not specific to, uh, to ecosystem, uh, is that you need a many, at least a two-tier approach to merger. A, ecosystem A is acquiring A3. First question is that, is any of the existing components in ecosystem A a cost substitute for A3? And if you look at the separate market for those, you know what happens. So traditional, mm -hmm. traditional horizontal, in this case, uh, merger analysis. Okay. Then after that, you have to say, OK, now, Let's realize that it's also competition between system, also between system and, sing, uh, uh, and, single. Uh, yeah. and single firm. So now, what is this going to add to the systems, and how is this going to affect competition? And from then, you have to start thinking a little bit about a bit more complex counterfactual, not just acquisition or no acquisition, 
the acquisition by system A as opposed to acquisition by system B. Because system B is a nascent system, while A was still outbidded, capturing part of the permanence of monopoly uh, rent, while uh, you know it would be much more pro-competitive to have it acquired by, uh, by, by system B. And this is important because it means that we should not just become allergic to acquisition by any system. You know, it's competition between system itself is an important mm -hmm. driver of those markets. And if we forego this, I think we forego a very, very important competitive force. And also the kind of, co of counterfactuals that uh, one has to think of is that in exceptional circumstances, this might be that A3 itself might actually be the core of a new system that will be built around it. But let's not see that in every single case that we have. We actually don't have a single actual documented case where we're absolutely sure that this was the case. This is a case for Instagram, this is a case for WhatsApp, maybe, maybe not. So let's not see this at every corner and reserve this kind of theory of arm for cases that look likely. So that's, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it's interesting to hear that, you know, some would say that this is a sort of new paradigm that we shift the presumptions. It sounds like you're saying we're kind of using the same sort of Why presumptions the, and trade-offs well, that well, we are used to. If anything, because of the complementarity, it tends to shift the presumption in, in favor, at least in terms of, of mergers. We haven't mm -hmm. talked about uh, antitrust yet. So I don't understand this shifting the presumption. It seems to me that what people tend to say, that is also true for the dynamic theory of ARM, is that it's all so complex, we can really understand what we're doing, so give us a break and believe us more. Uh, putting together that we really don't understand what we're doing and believing, uh, believe us, trust us more, in the same sentence is something that makes absolutely no sense to me. Interesting. So, so you mentioned that we've been focusing on mergers, so maybe let's, let's turn to, to antitrust. I think probably the most, you know, not thinking about specific cases, but in terms of trends, the most interesting development has been the sort of signal from the Commission that it's really wanting to move away from the sort of as efficient competitor standard, at least in certain circumstances, you know, if there's strong entry barriers or, or network effects. So obviously economics was kind of the source of, of, of many of those tools which are now being criticised, things like the as efficient competitor test. So, so how do you fee see the kind of thinking they're developing and how do we sort of delineate between the cases where we should be using that as a benchmark and a standard and, and those where we shouldn't? You know, let's step back. You say economics is the source. Is there much economics which is the source of the efficient, as efficient competitive test? Are there many well-known... I said, I said economists were the source rather than necessarily yeah, economists. Yeah, there are many brilliant academic paper who suggest that this is something marvellous. I'm not aware of that. Okay. So uh, it's not a test as far as I'm concerned. It's never a test. It's a benchmark. Mm. Okay. It's not the same thing. And a benchmark can be more or less useful depending on the nature of the case. <coughs> we are not, or at least I'm not, and I think that describes the position of many people in the city. we're not deadly opposed to this test because we do believe that even dominant firms have the right to compete. And if they set low prices, we should not necessarily conclude that it's evil. Mm -hmm. After all, that's kind of why we, what we'd like them to do. We start by not liking them because they set high prices. When they start setting low prices, we're suspicious, which is fine, but we should not be uh, completely biased. So when you talk about you know, predatory pricing or even maybe some normal quantity discounts, 
I think this is a role for the efficient, uh, efficient computer to test. In the sense that clearly, if you pass it very easily, that's kind of the end of the series mm -hmm. of them. Okay. If you fail it fairly heavily, uh, at, that at that stage, uh, you really encourage the theory of form as something to say. At that stage, I would say, frankly, the burden of proof starts shifting to, to the parties. It might not be that it's bad, but you know, you're so far below that you've got to have a bad story, a good story for it. Otherwise, uh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, uh, in those, uh, people disagree what happens to those when you kind of around. By around, I don't mean that, you know, you miss being below one out of 25 periods, but, you know, you're a little bit above, a little bit below, maybe always a little bit above. In my mind, as an economist, I'm still uncomfortable with those cases because there are very few circumstances where it would make sense for the monopolists to actually price that low. Okay. But on the other hand, I think that there we're kind of out of a zone of comfort. So unless you then have other evidence, like intent or other contractual clauses that accompany this pure kind of pricing mm. uh, issue, I would let it go. On the other hand, if you've got complementary evidence, then of course you put everything together. Well, I think that view is very, very compatible with uh, you know what the courts uh, seem seem to believe. But there's another set of cases, which are the exclusionary cases, okay? And a subset of that, although it's a big subset, are cases where you have clauses that relate to what rivals are doing. Is that the discount rate? It's a part of your requirement uh, condition, which of course refers directly to what you buy from rivals and this kind of stuff. So all those kind of more exclusivity kind of theory of arm have actually nothing to do with the as efficient computer test. You can think of them like, you know, it's not the, the most realistic theory of arm, but still, the Agion Bolton thing has nothing to do with it. Uh, there's uh, no reason to believe that you're going to be very high above, at or below the as efficient computer test as part of the theory of R. You know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the divide and conquer. Absolutely no link between mm -hmm. this and the sufficient confidence test. So given there's no link between the theory of arm and that, what should we maintain the fiction that, that, uh, uh, of that test? So in this case, we just get complete, completely rid of it. And then there's the intermediate thing where you say, okay, yes, as efficient competitor, there are two things. First, do you mean now or later? And second, even if you mean now, might, might there be a problem? So now or later, we all know maybe they're going to grow, reach economies of scale, learning by doing. And we all feel that saying, oh, sh sh tough luck, you're not as efficient now, let the other guy kill it, kill you, is not the way to go. But I think, in a sense, that's been our fault. In the sense that we should, is this what we think about? We should make our theory of arm explicitly dynamic. Explicitly dynamic. And then there's a thing, you know, even a less efficient competitor does provide competition, it makes sense for point of view economics, then what I don't think would ever win with the courts. Okay, interesting, interesting uh, landscape ahead of us. So, conscious of, of, of time, there's uh, one issue that I definitely want to turn to, the sort of elephant in the room, which is Fiona Scott Morton's uh, appointment and, and subsequent withdrawal to be your successor. <coughs> 
So I was just wondering, wondering, you know, how you see things. Like, does this, you know, what does this signal in terms of, you know, openness and and you know potentially politicization of of, of the chief economist as a as a role um, for you? Okay, first let me say that Fiona would have been an extremely qualified and good chief economist. Beyond that, I don't see necessarily a politicization of the role. I think there's been a politicization of the discourse within the Commission, and I think that DigiCom has been under a lot of uh, uh, political pressures. There are not too many friends of competitions around, okay, without pointing out any nationality or a, any side, we don't have that many friends. So, so there is de facto already a lot of, comp of political comp uh, pressure. But it's not exerted on the chief economist. It's mm. exerted, of course, you know, on the commissioner, on the cabinet, which is, which, is, which is the way it should be. So I don't see here a politicization of the roles the way it is performed once you're there. I hope this doesn't get into politicization of the selection. Here, of course, there was you know, one objective difference, the nationality, uh, on which people can disagree. Personally, I'm for getting people from the broader pool because it's actually not easy to find somebody with the right qualification. People will say, oh, you know, in a market of 450 million people, you can certainly find something. Well, give me names, yeah, okay? Yeah. Don't, 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 don't give me this 450 million crap. Mm. And then you, you mentioned the sort of focus on on Fiona as the first uh, non-European in the role, but she also would have been the, the first uh, woman in the role. And you know the competition community is much more diverse than it used to be. You know we've got female heads of agencies mm -hmm. in the EU, in the US, in the UK. But all of the chief economists to date have been white guys. Like, mm -hmm. do you think you'll be the last white dude in this role for a while, or or or? or and and if so, like, what can be done to kind of address that issue of diversity in the profession? Uh, clearly, I can say that within the commission and within the profession, there is a desire to move on and to, you know, as soon as possible, have a qualified kind of woman or other minority uh, in the role. I don't see any prejudice or any internal barriers against that. If anything, you know, when we first kind of uh, started preparing for publishing uh, the position, people within the city, we call around, of course. So that the greater number of people are aware of the position, and we made a special effort to call, you know, well-known women in the profession. But you know, you can bring a horse to water, kind of making drinks. If those people, for very good personal reasons, which I'm sure do not apply, then they clearly cannot, cannot, uh, cannot be chosen. Um, now, what what could we do? Well, you know, in the CT now, we have we are on a high mark in terms of proportion of women. We're, we're a bit on top of a third, which actually is a bit better than the profession as a whole. It's certainly much better than the profession in the field of industrial uh, yeah. organization. So at that level, at least, we try to do uh, what we can. Maybe something, this is just a hairbrain idea one should think of, is create a position within the CT of a one-year visiting position for people on sabbaticals for academic and sabbaticals. So we'd first increase the pool of academic with some hands-on experience, because even the most brilliant academics coming without any experience of commission policy will take a while to be, to be effective. And you could also privilege, uh, uh, at least for a while, women in, uh, uh, who apply to this position. Maybe that's something that, that we might consider. Okay, well, uh, we'll uh, watch this space, I guess, but, but one word answer 
Are you going to be carrying on in light of this? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, very good. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Pierre, and okay, uh, best you. of luck with what comes next. Okay, thanks. Bye bye. You listen to an episode of Antitrust Code by Concurrences. If you want to read more about this topic, check the Concurrences website, where you can find all relevant articles. Follow us on Twitter at Competition Loss and join the Concurrences group on LinkedIn to receive updates on our next podcast.